You shouldn't just wait until you pay off like $100,000 of student loans before you throw money into the stock market because it could take a decade for you to pay those back and that could be hundreds of thousands of dollars in compound interest that you're missing out on just because you're taking these baby steps as law. Welcome to The Fi Show, where you get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of The Fi Show, where today we're going to be breaking down some of Dave Ramsey's rules, saying what we like, what we don't like, and what we absolutely hate. But before we get into that, let me check in with my co-host, Justin. What is going on, man? Well, this past weekend, I'm still down in Mississippi, so it's a lot of family stuff, and Leslie finally made it in, so... Went and grabbed her from Memphis. Friday, I went with her and my mom up to this restaurant that my mom's been wanting to take her to forever called Nautical Whimsy in Tupelo. Their food is fantastic. If for some reason you're ever coming through Tupelo, Mississippi, stop in there. The portions are also just nuts. Like, they're ridiculous. Uh, Saturday, took some time working on some projects. While I'm back home, you know, my brother's got a lot more tools and know-how than I do. So sometimes I have these little odd projects I want to do, and I save those for when I come home. And then we went, did a little karaoke at my dad's bar barn thing he's gotten at his house with uh, with my sister and some other folks uh, some of my cousins and then Sunday you know my my mom gets uh, my nieces and nephews every Sunday night so kind of hung out with them we also had another cousin's birthday party so just a lot of family stuff how about you Cody Nothing wrong with family stuff. I'm definitely going to be doing a lot of that this week with Christmas coming if you celebrate Christmas Merry Christmas because we won't see you till after Christmas when the next episode drops. For me, we actually, remember I mentioned that Wright's Chicken Farm place last weekend, Justin, where you basically just eat until you can't move? Yeah. I went there again (laughs) one week later. So Lauren's family, my fiance's family, organized this trip to, you guessed it, Wright's Chicken Farm. And it was literally one week exactly after I had just been there with a bunch of my friends. So again, kind of did the same thing over again, ate way too much, but... That's the only reason you go to Rice Chicken Farms, just to eat. I thought it was a once a year kind of place, Cody. It is. It is. And I hadn't been there in seven or eight years before, like this last time. And now this is like my third time this year. It's crazy. But sorry, I got to hang out with family. Like you said, hanging out with family is important. Got to eat a lot of good food. And I actually got my first snowboarding trip of the year in so far. So went up to Mount Snow. We have not been getting much snow in New England. I know I've been seeing some places out in Denver and Utah and all the Rocky Mountains are getting snow, but not too much up here. So it wasn't the best conditions, but probably about 40 or 50% of the trails were open. So that was a lot of fun getting to test out my new board. That was my little, you know, non-frugal splurge that I had for this year because my board was 10 or 11 years old and it was kind of falling apart. I know I mentioned that in a previous episode, but yeah, it was a ton of fun. Excited for this new ski season. And although winter isn't my favorite season, it is fun when you get to do some snow sports. But Justin, before we get into the Dave Ramsey stuff for today, let's take a quick moment for our partner. Keeping track of your net worth is one of the most important things you can do on your journey to financial independence. If you don't have an idea of what your net worth is, there's no way that you can keep your quote unquote score. One of our favorite tools to keep this score is called personal capital. If you haven't already started using it, it's an online software that basically compiles all of your data, it crunches all your assets, all your liabilities, and spits out a net worth number and allows you to track it day by day, month by month. Yeah, Cody, one of the big things that hold people back when they're doing activities like tracking their expenses or tracking their net worth 
is just they look at it as a big burden and this allows you to go in with one username and one password and access as many financial accounts as you have these can be loans these can be 401ks these can be hsas bank accounts credit cards they're all linked there the other thing I really like about personal capital is it's very investing focused. So you can go in there and look at your allocation across your entire portfolio. So you don't just look at your allocation in one type of account, but your allocation as a person completely. And if you want to use the same tool that me and Cody use to track our net worth, which is completely free, you can do so at thefyshow.com slash PC. That's thefyshow.com slash PC. All right, so we're kind of going to go through each of Dave Ramsey's baby steps. If you are not familiar, we'll make sure we put those in the show notes where you can just listen through to the entire episode. But baby step number one is to save $1,000 for your starter emergency fund. Now, again, Justin and I are going to give this an honest look, what we like, what we don't like. Dave Ramsey does get a lot of flack in the financial community, but I got to give it to him. I mean, he's definitely made more of a positive impact than a negative impact. There are things that, you know, as you listen to this episode, Justin and I don't agree with, and a lot of other people in the financial independent space don't agree with, but we're going to give this guy, you know, the benefit of the doubt. We're going to, if he's giving good advice, we'll tell him he's giving good advice. If not, we'll offer a different solution. So Justin, what do you think of baby step number one, save a thousand dollars for your starter emergency fund? Well, I definitely love the idea of kind of starting out with building an emergency fund. I think my problem with a lot of these kind of rules of thumb in general, not just Dave Ramsey, but, you know, this is a good example, is it's so explicit. Save $1,000 for your emergency fund, for your starter emergency fund, I guess. I know that later, you know, we'll talk about three to six months of expenses, but I just don't know where the $1,000 comes from. I mean, to me, every person is different. How much money you need to save is different. And also, you know, I think that I, I really like the more the three to six month type of emergency fund more than I do a starter. I understand it's like a baby step. Number one, you're just trying to get some money in there. And so I don't have any problem with that. Um, I just think that anytime we put specific dollar values and not more of like a percentage based thing or a time based thing, it's just a little tricky because not everyone, you know, a thousand dollars to everyone is not the same runway, you know, for somebody who's got, you know, maybe they're like a, a single mom with three kids Maybe $1,000 is a little more dangerous than it is if you are someone who's maybe going to college on a scholarship and you're still living at home with your parents and you don't have any kids. Like You're just in a totally different situation. So putting an explicit number on it is not always my favorite. I think the one thing I don't like about this being baby step number one is not getting them in the investing mindset straight off. Because like if you're just putting money into an emergency fund, whether that's a checking account or a savings account, that money's never going to compound. Like, yes, it's great if that person is not saving at all. If this is their first, you know, try at saving, this is their first attempt, then awesome. If Dave Ramsey gets them there with his baby step number one, that's fantastic. I agree with you, Justin. It's a new, it's nuanced. So it's like $1,000 to someone might be a lot different than it is to someone else. But I think, I mean, if it was me, like I would definitely in one of those earlier baby steps, not as long as it takes Dave Ramsey to kind of flesh this out, talk about the power of investing, because I think that can just go a lot farther. I know you recently spoke at your high school, Justin, and I'm sure it's a, it goes a lot further when you say, hey, you can retire before 30 if you you know do these things with investing and start to contribute to a Roth IRA and a brokerage account rather than just like saving up some arbitrary amount in a checking or a savings account. Yeah, the other thing, too, is, you know, which we'll get into later, but obviously one of Dave Ramsey's things is being completely against credit cards. When you're talking about small things like that, like if you're, the things you would save $1,000 for in an emergency situation, to me, a credit card can beat that. As long as you're responsible for credit cards, something pops up and you don't have $1,000 to pay for it. 
but you know you'd be fine in like three weeks. You just need a little bit of time, like boom. You know, that's where you can pull out that credit card in those situations. Again, you don't want to be leaning on a credit card. You don't want to ever put anything on it that you can't pay off at the end of the month, in my opinion. But, you know, you don't always have to stress about that. Because like you said, you can put that money to work instead of kind of living in this fear mindset. Where it's like, well, what if the $1,000 thing happens? Yeah, I agree. And I think the big thing in that is making sure the person is responsible with credit cards. I think that's that's the reason I, I understand the ideology why Ramsey says no credit cards because he just wants to be as dogmatic as possible, not the if, ands, or buts, like, oh, but you could get these travel miles. And there's a lot of things that he doesn't like that I say about credit cards, but we'll get into that in a bit. So let's hop into baby step number two. So this one is pay off all debt except the house using the debt snowball method. Justin, initial thoughts on that? Well, you know, I know it doesn't like say it in the the text of the baby step, but from my understanding, you can't, you know, the only thing, my biggest problem with this is that you're paying off all debt. And I'm glad it does say except house. But it's like before all else. And you look at something like a 401k where a company gives you a match, that's a 100% return. So unless you have some type of loan that is charging you more than 100% <laughs> interest, um, which I hope is illegal, then there's no that doesn't make any sense. Like you're getting 100% returns on 401k match money. To me, that like is step number one. Take the free money. Take that. And also with the snowball, I believe that is like where you pay off the smallest loan first and then the next one and the next one. And it's not taking into consideration the rate of the interest that you're paying. And that's a big problem to me. I mean, I understand the psychology behind it and like, let's get a small win. And maybe you want to do one of those, but I wouldn't like stack them in order and say smallest to largest. I might say, let me pay off one small one to just feel committed and get into it. And now I'm focusing on those higher percentage rates. You know, we've also talked with guests about, you know, they had the lasso method where they're saying, okay, let's take that and let's do some transfers to a credit card so that we can get that back down to a zero percent interest for a little bit of time. There's a lot of things you can do that are more formulated than just simply saying, oh, I got the smallest amount left on this one. Let's attack that. one." I think that's super true. And if people are wondering what Justin's talking about with that debt lasso method, because that was new to me, that was episode 150 with John and David from the Debt Free Guys. But then there's also the debt avalanche, which is like paying the highest rate first. So if you have a credit card that's 30%, like pay that off before you go and pay off your student loans that are four or five percent. It just makes a lot more sense math wise. The other thing I know you mentioned, Justin, and I totally agree with this part is Dave Ramsey explicitly says, accept the house. So the mortgage comes later. You're not just like throwing all your money into your mortgage before you invest, which, okay, that's good for him for at least acknowledging that. Like you should be investing at some point, although he just gets to investing way too late. But there's also things like anything low interest. I honestly think anything under, say, 5%, and this is just a rule of thumb, and this is the end of 2021, we're recording this, where rates could change in the future. Anything under 5%, if you have student loans that are 3.5%, 4%, you shouldn't just wait until you pay off like $100,000 of student loans before you throw money into the stock market because it could take a decade for you to pay those back, and that could be hundreds of thousands of dollars in compound interest that you're missing out on just because you're taking these baby steps as law. And the reason why we wanted to record this episode was just to tell you that there are different ways. Like, if you are a Ramsey follower, I'm not sure how many or what percentage of our audience has followed Dave Ramsey in the past, but there's just there's always a different way. And I think, you know, if you've listened to this show for a while, Justin and I are all about taking the side door instead of going in the front door where everybody else is entering and figuring out a better, smarter, different way to do things. Here's a great example of this that I'm going through right now. You know, I just bought a truck, which, you know, I'm sure Dave Ramsey would lose his mind over the fact that I just brought it, bought a new vehicle. Although I do think I heard some rule where like, 
once you have a million dollars, you're allowed to buy a new car or something. I don't know. I think someone <laughs> told me that before. So maybe I'm in the clear. But, you know, it's a 0% interest for six years. Now, if I paid that off, I would literally be costing myself money because now that's money that's not in the stock market, that's not gaining interest, it's not compounding. I would have to look at the opportunity cost of paying that loan off quicker. You can argue all you want to about what that line is. Is it 5%? Is it 4%? But I feel pretty good about 0%. You know, like I, I'm going to take 0%. If they would have gave me 0% for 30 years, I would have done it. You know, I don't care how long I'm holding that debt because it's free money. Like I'll take free money because I know that I'm going to take that money and invest it. Again, completely understand where Dave's coming from with some of the psychology here, where some people wouldn't take that excess money that they just freed up and then invest it and put it to work. They would just spend it somewhere else. And so that's kind of the person, you know, I think he's trying to talk to. But we know our listeners typically are, are going to be a little more savvy than that. And I, and our hope is that everyone can be a little more savvy than that. And you're not just sitting there and trying to avoid these giant pitfalls, but you're actually optimizing. I think while we're on the debt thing, because I'm reading through the baby steps now, the only one that explicitly says the word debt is this baby step number two, where you're paying off all debt except the house. And I don't remember exactly if he wrote this in the baby steps or where I read this, but he says like, don't step foot inside a restaurant unless you're working there while you're paying off debt. And I think just a reason why I really don't like that is because you don't want your money journey, whether that's paying off debt, whether that's investing, you don't want it to be a deprivation journey or you're going to get burnt out fast. So if you are not enjoying yourself, if you're someone who likes to go to restaurants and socialize, Justin and I recorded an episode a couple of weeks ago where, you know, go split an entree. You know, maybe you eat before you go to the restaurant and then you maybe just get a drink there or you get a soda or whatever. There's so many different ways around it where, you know, using a hard and fast rule, like don't step foot inside a restaurant <laughs> unless you're completely debt free. That's just ridiculous. And if you're subjecting yourself to that kind of deprivation, you're probably going to get really unmotivated from those money goals. If you can kind of build it into your life that, you know, I am someone who uses credit cards responsibly. I am someone who invests in the stock market. I am someone who understands compound interest. And that just becomes part of your identity. Then some crazy rule, like you can't step foot somewhere, like there's some restraining order against you that every restaurant in America has just enacted. I just think that's a bit ridiculous. And I, I really don't like that deprivation mindset that he promotes. All right. So baby step number three, this is what you were talking about before, Justin, is save three to six months of expenses in a fully funded emergency fund. Thoughts? Yeah. You know, I like this one. I mean, I like that it's a, I like the fact that there's a range here, you know, three to six months. I know that still is, is sounds a little explicit, but, you know, I think with some nuance here and you talk about kind of what kind of job are you in? How stable is it? Like, are you working for the military? maybe you can edge towards that 3%. Are you a freelancer? You probably want to go towards that 6%, maybe even more. You know, I think that's the part that, you know, when you need to think about like, where are these numbers coming from, it's not just a, it shouldn't be just a number you're pulling out of thin air. It should be in all likelihood, if you were to lose your job, it would take you, you know, a certain amount of time to find work again. And also what are the likelihood that it ever happens in the first place? And that's why, you know, if you're in a job where you're working for the government under a contract, like, this is probably an extremely rare case, right? So three months is probably fine. If you're like a freelancer, obviously, you know, we've seen with COVID, like depending on if you were more of an in-person type thing, you know, maybe you were a photographer for events that might've really destroyed your income versus, you know, if you had a digital thing and you were just helping someone out write blog articles, maybe that didn't hurt you at all. But depending on what industry and you never know what's going to attack an industry as a freelancer, I think you need to go a little bit more on the high end. But uh, yeah, again, I, I'm totally good with taking some money and, and put it into an emergency fund. 
you know, I'm not saying that like everyone should just have enough cash to live off of for years. And I'm also not saying you should never have a penny in your emergency fund and should only rely on credit cards. Like it's always good to have a little money in an emergency fund. I also think though, something that maybe gets overlooked sometimes with emergency fund is it is okay to be a little heavier in an emergency fund if you're someone who is investing like 90 plus percent in stocks. And because the way I think about it is traditionally people would say maybe like 70% stocks, 30% bonds. But if you're someone who has way more in stocks, then that cash can kind of act like your bonds. It also gives you the opportunity for when something pops up. Like me, you know, in my life, I've, I've bought a, and sold a couple cars to make some money on. Or maybe something comes along like where I've invested in some syndications, right? You need some cash on hand. A lot of times there's not a huge window to do that. So there kind of is some opportunity cost by not having cash. So I, I'm, I'm more of a proponent of probably having a little more cash than some people, but it's because I'm so heavy into stocks with basically no bonds. And I also am open to these kind of investment opportunities where you just need a lump sum of cash really quick. So the one thing I will say is I think I do see a lot of people in the personal finance space on Instagram, on Twitter have just like these ridiculous emergency funds. And while it might be okay, and if it helps you sleep at night, 100% do that. I'm not telling you that if you need an emergency fund to sleep well and to feel financially stable, definitely do that. But I think a lot of people don't give their emergency fund an honest look and like take a retrospective look back at your spending over the past three to five years, say. What really big expenses that you needed cash in a day or two were there? Maybe there's a couple of people listening that are like, okay, I can think of some specific instances. But for me, I can't think of any scenario where I needed like, you know, $5,000 just in a day where there wasn't a chance for me to like liquidate some of my stocks or liquidate some of my other holdings where I just had to have this money sitting in, which usually an emergency fund is usually held in a high yield savings account in this community anyways, which, which seems to be most common. But I think a lot of people just don't take the mathematical approach like we were talking about, Justin, with the debt and actually take a look at their own lives, their own expenditures and think like, okay, what what's something that if it broke tomorrow or if this thing happened, I would need to shell out you know this number, this amount of money so fast that I couldn't just like liquidate some of my other holdings somewhere else. I just think people don't give themselves an honest look when they're building out an emergency fund. Which is not necessarily an emergency fund, but it's a little bit of a nuance the way I look at it too, as someone who's, you know, getting closer to, to retiring. Doug Norman actually, you know, kind of mentioned this to me one time, and I thought it was a great thought is to kind of have, when he actually retires, he's like, I wanted to have three years of cash on hand. And now why is that? It's because he was really just looking to minimize issues with retiring early. Not Now, if you're working full-time, this is not the same kind of deal. But as you get ready to retire early, you have to build up to that. You don't just wake up one day and have three years worth of cash. The idea is that traditionally a bear market is not going to be longer than three years. And you don't want to liquidate those stocks when you need to reach in there and get some cash to pay off for things. So he carried three years worth of cash. And if the stock market crashed then he would swap to using cash right out that three years and then go back into stock. So he never had to sell while he was down, which is just another reason why I love that maybe me and Cody look at this one differently and that's okay. Like these hard and fast, like commandments that are like, you cannot break. That's probably the biggest overarching thing you'll hear from us. It's like, there's a lot of nuance here and there's times where it makes sense and there's times when it doesn't. So just to give you a little bit more color into my opinion here. So something I see all the time when there's a big market dip is people are like, I just threw so much money in the market. And I'm like, why did you have all that money just sitting on the sidelines? Like if you're in this community, you know that 
you know, Justin and I are huge proponents of just throwing money in the market. It's a long game, dollar cost average, like even, you know, auto contribute from every single paycheck. And then I'll see all these like personal finance influencers, people in the five space that are like, oh yeah, I just dumped tens of thousands of dollars into the market because we had this big dip. I'm like, well, what was it doing out of the market? Like, why was it just sitting in that savings account? And like, that doesn't sound like an emergency fund because it was really your emergency fund and you need it, then you wouldn't be throwing it into the market during a downturn. So <laughs> I think that is my qualms with some of the people in this space, not going to name names, but I see, I see that all the time. People are like, oh, I just, you know, I just threw $50,000 in the market. It's like, well, that $50,000 could have been working for you this whole time. So speaking of investing, Justin, the next baby step is to invest 15%. It's interesting how he uses just a very hard and fast percentage again <laughs> and as we're talking about all this nuance, but it's invest 15% of your household income in retirement. I hate these like rules of thumb. There's like one of my biggest pet peeves. These like very like 15%. To me, it's like, you know, if you tell somebody, you tell a college student when they need to turn in a paper it's going to, let's say it's Sunday night at midnight. They're going to turn it in at Sunday at 1155. They're going to get right <laughs> up. It's like, hey, you, I did what you told me to do. Didn't do any more and not did, didn't do any less. And this is the way like humans will react. If you tell them invest 15%, there's probably a very good chance that they could have done more and they didn't. Now, I understand that there's some people who are maybe, you know, struggling to get to that. And this like pushes them and, and incentivizes them and like motivates them to get to 15 but there's still a lot of people, you know, I think the kind of audience we're talking to, where when you hear something like this, it actually puts like a mental limit on you where you're like, well, I did 15%. I can go do whatever I want to now. I did the, I did the 15%. It's what they said. Why would you ever limit how much you're investing? Like invest as much as you can while being able to live the life you, you know, want to live within reason and take care of the people around you. You know, obviously don't put yourself into deprivation, but why would you stop at 15% if you could do... 60 and still do everything you want to do like well why would you say only 15 percent? now if you said but i don't even like saying invest minimum because again when you hear that a lot of people would say well it just said i need to do 15 so i really don't like setting an exact percentage on it because for too many people it gives them this out it gives them this excuse to say well i did the minimum why should i do more I could not have said it better myself with the college essay getting turned in at 11.55 p.m. But it's so true. I think Elon Musk said, if you give yourself like three weeks to clean your house, you'll clean your house in three weeks. If you give yourself three hours, that house is going to be clean in three hours. It's it's just how we operate as humans. Like you give yourself a deadline and you wait until the last second to hit that deadline or hit that milestone or hit that 15% investment rate. So yeah, I could not agree more on that. And I think it all goes back to what I was saying at the very beginning. I think a lot of this it's not like he's teaching mindset. It's almost like he's just these dogmatic rules where you have to do this exact thing. And he's not just kind of giving you the big picture. Like, I think that's why we like doing this show so much, Justin. And what we try to teach our audience is, you know, the reason why we do this and we do different ways of getting to financial independence and we do different things with it, but it's allowed us this freedom. Like when we start with the freedom and the freedom that money allows you to buy yourself, once you realize that money is a tool and like, you know, if you invest more, you're going to be able to retire or earlier. If you invest more, you're going to be able to do this and do that. And I think just from what I've learned, I haven't gone through his full program. So if we have some Dave Ramsey followers, I'm sorry, but and you can correct me and we can chat about it in the Facebook group. But from what I have read and what I've seen on social media, like he doesn't really preach that at all. It's kind of just like follow these dogmatic rules, getting the homework done type of thing, passing in the essay at 1155 p.m., call it a day. This is good enough. 
All right, so moving through the list, Justin, baby step number five, definitely a controversial one, and we'll get into why, but save for your children's college fund. Initial thoughts. You know, this falls into another one with so much nuance. You know, not everyone can afford to save for their kid's college. I also think about my own specific situation where, you know, was I hoping that my parents had money for me to go to college on as a kid? Yeah, but they didn't. And now, you know, you can say hindsight 2020, but looking back on it, it's probably one of the best things that ever happened to me. It made me take money very seriously. I had to figure out a way. And I actually got so into this and motivated to try to find a way. I ended up making money going to college. That would have never happened if my parents would have just been like, here's the money, go to college, have fun. The other thing with this too is when you look at time horizons, especially if you have like older parents, and the time horizon they have to recover from them taking out, you know, a lot of the money that they would have been diverting towards their retirement towards your college fund, they don't have a whole lot of runway to make that back up. And you've really done a detriment to them. Whereas the the kid, if the, even if they do had to take on like a little bit of debt, they've got so much time to come out of that. You know, we all know compounding interest is the biggest thing on our side. Time is the biggest thing on your side. And so if you sit there and you maybe like, set your retirement date back another 10 years because you're saying for your kids college when maybe they could have just you know maybe it only sets them back another two years because they're doing it so early into their their lifespan i'm just not a big fan of sacrificing your retirement and your future i know i don't have kids but i just don't think that's the thing to do i wouldn't have wanted my parents to do that i would rather my parents be retired and able to hang out with me as a young adult than for them to still be working and me sitting there and, and not have any college debt. Like, I, I mean, I would rather, as the kid in the situation, would rather my parents just be available and, and be around and be taken care of and me not having to, you know, stress about their finances for them to be on more solid ground. That would be more beneficial to me as a kid than knowing that I don't have, I've got a little less college debt. The reason why this one really gets me is, again, the dogma. It's like, save for your children's college fund, baby step number five, one, not everyone is planning to have kids. And so I think that's just unfair to kind of just throw that in as baby step number five. Like you can't even get to six and seven unless, you know, number five is complete. That just seems a bit ridiculous. And Justin, I totally concur with what you're saying is if a parent is going to go into financial distress or not reach their retirement goals just because they're putting aside X number of dollars each year for their kid's college fund, that just doesn't make sense. And, you know, when the kid becomes an adult, they're like, hey, mom, dad, why are you still working until you're 75? Oh, because you are spending all these hours and all of your money investing in my college fund. I also don't like, I went on the Ramsey website and he kind of just recommends, you know, what you'd expect, all the traditional ways to save for college, all the traditional vehicles is like the ESA, the education savings account, the 529 plan. And then there's like the UTMA and UGMAs. And while some of those might make sense for some people, there's just, again, there's a lot of nuance when it comes to humans. And a lot of those plans are great if you are 100% sure that your kid is going to college and that money is going to be used for an education expense. But unfortunately, with a lot of those accounts, like you are really pigeonholed into making sure that it is an education expense. So if you know there are people making six plus figures that don't need a college degree, the world is rapidly changing. I have no idea what the landscape of jobs is going to look like in 15 to 20 years. Like college is seems like it's slowly becoming less and less important in different fields 
obviously college is still going to be a thing and higher education is great, but it's just, it's not the be all end all. And there's so many examples of people getting into coding, into marketing, into all these different new technology fields where they're just kind of, kind of getting the skills, whether it's through internships or through their own experience, and they don't actually need that formal college education. So being trapped in one of those plans where you have to spend that on an education expense. And yes, there's some kind of ways around it. And I've heard all these different creative strategies, but all in all, it's just, I don't like having my money tied in, in, a, in an account where that account serves one specific purpose, like a 529 or an ESA. Yeah. And I think like what you just said, as far as people starting out now is a really important thing to think about. People are just now thinking they want to start saving for a kid that's maybe not even born yet. The market is just changing in a way that I don't know if we completely comprehend just yet. Like you said, obviously college is still going to be there. There's still going to be a lot of high income earners coming out of college, but you know, I would be nervous about taking that bet that it was going to be a for sure thing that in 20 years that my kid is going to want and need to go to college. And it's not going to be, you know, I, like Google has already started coming out with these programs where you take all their courses and you become certified. And now you've got a job waiting on you from them. And I think as we see some of these massive employers, like your Amazons, your Microsofts, your Googles of the world, you're going to start to see this very specific education for them. Because when you think about it, it's really a win-win for both sides. For the employee, you're getting a much quicker, much, much cheaper education, and you are very well equipped for this specific job. For the employer, again, you're very well equipped for their specific job. You don't just have this general knowledge. And they probably have a little bit better chance of hanging on to you because you have Google specific knowledge. You don't have Microsoft specific knowledge. So like you are a little bit more tied to that one company. And so you probably create a little more loyalty and you create an easier barrier to entry. I think we're going to start to see a lot more of that. And for those who are thinking, all right, I see what you're saying, Cody and Justin, like, let's not put all of our money into these accounts like a 529 or an ESA, but I still want to maybe build up some kind of a fund for my kid if they want to go to college or some other education that requires money. Here are two creative strategies that I've heard people do. So I'm not going to get into all the nuances here, but you can open up like a Roth IRA for your kid. And there are ways where, you know, once they're even when they're two or three years old, that they can legally earn income and then put that legally earned income into that Roth IRA. Again, I'm not going to get into all the nuances here, but just look that up. It's an option. Another one I've heard is if you're a real estate investor, I know we have a lot of real estate listeners and we have had quite a few real estate guests on the show is buying an investment property basically with the sole purpose of funding your kid's education. So you buy a property, let's say I buy property now, I'm 25, let's say I have you know a kid in five years and they're going to college. So what is that, 25 years down the road? At that point, like I have an almost paid off investment property and that thing is you know hopefully spewing out cash flow every month. And once that's like a completely paid off asset, like that is just kind of churning out money and I could you know gift it to my kid, that could be funding their education. And the, so- Again, it's it's kind of just going back to the dogma thing. There's so many creative ways to save money for different expenses and to fund your kid's college or fund your kid's whatever that just kind of following the Dave Ramsey rules doesn't quite cut it for me. Oh, here we go, Justin. Baby step number six, pay off your home early. I'm actually interested to see if we have differing opinions on this. What are your thoughts? So for this one, again, this falls straight into the psychology category because, um, you know, I had a, a coworker who I worked with a little bit on some personal finance coaching stuff. Her dad wanted to chat with me and he asked me, you know, he's getting ready to retire. He's like, you know, I'm trying to figure out, should I pay my house off? And I said, well, it's not a math question. It's a psychology question. He's like, what are you talking about? 
I said, okay, well, what's your interest rate? I think he said 3%. I said, okay, how much do you have left on the house? It's like $170,000. Okay. If somebody came to you and said, I've got this amazing investment opportunity, guarantees 3%, and all you got to do is give me $170,000 up front, what would you do? He's like, absolutely not. Sounds like a terrible investment. I was like, that's literally what you just asked me if you should do. Like, that is what you're trying to do. You're trying to bet that like 3% is the most you can do with that money. And, you know, we just bought a house and it's a 2.6% interest rate. If they would have let me take out a 200-year loan, I would have taken it. Like, I don't ever want to pay <laughs> off 2.6% 2, 2. interest. Like, give me more money at 2.6% interest rate. I'll take every dime you'll give me. I would gamble. I mean, definitely not advisable, but 2.6%, I would be taking out as much debt as I could to invest in the stock market over a 30-year period. Like, I'd be printing money at that point, even if I lose money for a couple of years. Like, man... So yeah, I, I love that analogy, Justin. I think another thing, I mean, a reason why I like real estate so much, so many of our guests who have achieved early financial independence like real estate so much is because if you're smart about it and if you're using leverage strategically, not irresponsibly, leverage is a great way to build wealth way quicker than you know just investing in the stock market. So for example, let's just pretend I have $100,000 to invest. I could put $100,000 into the stock market and let's just use the 4% rule for simplicity. The 4% rule that I could says that I could take $4,000 every year from that $100,000 and I could basically live on that for the rest of my life. So if my if my expenses were $4,000 a year, perfect, I'm all set. Got that 100K in the stock market, boom, I'm, I'm ready to go. Or, and I'm just going to make this simple so I can do the math in my head, let's say I find a an awesome $500,000 investment property, whatever, how many, however many doors you want, depending on your market. But let's say I need to put 20% down and, you know, this is without house hacking. So this is just like a regular investor loan, put 20% down. So it's hundred K into my $500,000 house. And let's say I'm getting, you know, $5,000 a month in rent. It's get, hitting the 1% rule exactly, which is, you know, 1% of the purchase price you can get in monthly rent. And let's just say expenses are 2,500 or 3,000 altogether a month. So I'm like cash flowing like two grand a month on this property which those numbers are not unreasonable if you go through like an investment property calculator or something like that. So within that, in this scenario, you know, I'm getting the $4,000 a year from that $100,000 invested in the stock market and I'm getting like $2,500 a month potentially from this investment property or could be $30,000 a year. This is definitely a simplistic example. There's a lot of nuance, kind of like what we've been talking about in this whole show. But if used responsibly, that's why people like investing in real estate is because of that leverage is because if you have a certain amount of cash, it can just go so much farther for you. So when it comes to paying off your home early, like if that makes you sleep better at night, like Justin said, 100% go for it. But the reason why that leverage is so powerful is because you can deploy that cash. You can let the bank finance whatever percentage they're willing to finance and then use your cash to deploy into other strategic investments all over and hopefully, you know, reach that FI date, reach that early retirement date even faster. And I know this is like a huge argument that people have, and I definitely have no qualms with people who want to do this. As long as you can be transparent and open and honest and say, this is purely about psychological like safety, and I just want to be able to get rid of that stressor and just live my life and, and feel free and whatever, then absolutely go for that. As long as you can understand why you're doing it and that you're not doing it because it is the most you know, statistically, mathematically optimal scenario. Like you're doing it because you want peace of mind and that's worth something. And I mean, you know, if you need that, I, I, there's no reason in living in stress. So it's definitely would be better to to lose out on some percentage points if 
that's the one thing you need in order to like just enjoy your life. And just realizing now I might have overbloated those real estate numbers a little bit, but I mean, just run some of the numbers. It might not be in your specific market, but go back, listen to some of our episodes on real estate. You can really get like three, four, five, six X return on your money if you're investing in the right market at the right time at the right price point. All right. But the last one here, and we've been talking about building wealth and investing, Justin, and I, I kind of like this one at face value. So it's four words, build wealth and give. So at face value, I really like that. I'm sure we can dig in and find things we don't like, but what is your initial reaction right off the bat? Like you said, at face value, that statement, obviously, I like that. I think the problem is, is we're talking about it last. Like we're, we're talking about it here at the end. We're talking about it as if that you can't do some of that along the way that you have to wait till the very, very end before you start investing and building up. And I mean, you know, like we just said, if you've got these loans that are 0%, 1.9, 2.6, like there is no reason why you couldn't be investing and building wealth well before those loans are paid off. A lot of these rules are built around kind of, you know, I think more around psychology than the actual best way of doing it from a money perspective. But I think this is a part where you are kind of taking a hit from a psychological perspective, because you're not building those habits. You're not getting used to investing. You're not, you know, it takes some time and it's good when you don't have a ton of money where like the the stock market drops 10% and you lose like a hundred dollars or a thousand dollars. Like it's good to feel that then, then when you're sitting there and you know, it drops 10% and you lose $10,000 or a hundred thousand dollars, you know, those are very tough to deal with. So it's almost like what we've talked about where, when you're kind of letting uh, kids make some decisions with money, let them fail when it's safe. You know, I think investing when you don't have a ton of extra cash and you're just and you're seeing large percentage swings, but it's not really destroying you because you don't have much money invested in the first place. I think getting used to that because sometimes it might take 10 years to see a full cycle. You know, people have been investing in the stock market since whatever, 2012 or something, have not really seen anything but up. And so the longer you can get in it and the more experience you can get and the more like you can kind of keep your your blood pressure calm when things go well or poorly, I think that is a huge thing to making sure that you can last this out for a long time. So one of the things that isn't so explicit in this build wealth and give thing is how you're building that wealth. And I think, might be mistaken, but I think Dave Ramsey has this, like his own investment funds and they have like fees and they're just not very good performers so if you are a dave ramsey listener who is listening to this podcast right now please 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 do not invest in the dave ramsey funds or whatever he calls them his mutual funds that his team of advisors run or whatever we've talked about a bunch of different investment platforms before like we love vanguard fidelity and schwab are both fine too but please 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 don't (laughs) invest in the dave ramsey fund and i also think he kind of over exaggerates the rate of return i think i've seen things like 10 to 12 percent guaranteed year over year return and while you know if you look at the market over the past say nine years like you just mentioned justin those returns aren't outlandish but i'm pretty sure that's been something that he's been preaching for like the past 30 years (laughs) so i would just say when it comes to investing take everything that dave ramsey says with a grain of salt justin and i try to keep it real here give you real numbers real scenarios real platforms but please if you're building wealth don't build wealth the dave ramsey mutual fund way find another fund like a vanguard or a fidelity or a schwab and I think one other thing we could talk about, just because it, it's the most egregious thing, I think, for anyone who is decent with their money, and I know we've kind of mentioned it, 
is the ditching credit cards completely. I don't think I could ever do any episode about like Dave Ramsey rules without just bringing up how much we hate ditching credit cards completely. <laughs> All right, let's get into it then. Obviously, we are both huge proponents of travel hacking. And for those who have not listened to any of those episodes, basically Justin and I have kind of gamified the credit card system where we'll hit the minimum spend on a credit card, we'll accumulate all those points, and then we'll cash in those points for awesome trips, awesome vacations, and awesome stuff. And if you're a Dave Ramsey subscriber, it is something that you are missing out on. I know a lot of people who have kind of come over from the dark side, like Sarah from Nerd's Guide to Fi actually quite recently, thought credit cards were the devil, that anyone who had a credit card was an idiot, and like credit score was an I love debt score. But like you said, Justin, if you're responsible, like credit cards can be a huge, super powerful tool, not only from the travel reward side of things, but also we talked about John and David from episode 150. They were using these 0% balance transfer credit cards to use the debt lasso method to make this debt that was, you know, they had 20% credit card debt down to zero for 18 months. They could just throw as much as they possibly could at that principal. So if you're responsible, there's a lot of really cool stuff that you can get. It's a lot of cool rewards that you can get from using credit cards responsibly. And it's a lot more than even just, you know, maybe some people don't want to get into travel hacking, although it's really not that difficult. But, you know, maybe you don't want to be the person who's like, oh, crap, I'm buying gas. Let me go through my Rolodex and find the right credit card for that. Totally understand that. But like what Cody said, those minimum spins, it's very low hanging fruit. Also, things like I was in a rental car out in Yosemite a couple years ago and it was snowing. I come around a corner and there's a car has spun out in the middle of the road. There was nowhere I could go. I could either run off a cliff or hit the car. So I hit the car. You know, and that, and now the rental car companies want to like charge me for it. Well, because I had the American Express Platinum and that insurance picks up wherever your insurance leaves off. Funny thing was, I only had liability, which means my insurance wasn't going to pick up at all. So it all went to American Express. They paid for all of it. I had a Apple Watch that got broken a couple weeks after Leslie bought it. And there you have that purchase protection on some of these credit cards where if something breaks in the first 90 days... You just send them a picture of it and the receipt where you bought it and they'll reimburse you to buy a whole nother one for free. Sometimes there's price protection where, you know, you're stressing about, ah, should I buy this shit? Maybe it'll come on a better sale around like Black Friday or something. A lot of credit cards will say, hey, if you find a better price, let us know. We'll cover the difference. It's also so much safer in a, in a world where, you know, you have to worry about identity theft and people stealing passwords and bank account information. If somebody gets hold of your debit card and starts draining your checking account, that can be borderline impossible to get your money back. If somebody gets your credit card and they start buying stupid stuff with it, you call the credit card company, you have them shut off that credit card, you dispute those charges, you never have to pay for them. It's very, very simple. They don't have a direct line into your bank account. So, I mean, even if for nothing else, it was purely just for safety, you know, I would say credit cards are much, much better than, than debit cards. Um, obviously, you need to learn how to use everything responsibly. And the biggest tip I always tell people is go in there and turn on the little feature where you automatically pay off the full balance uh, on a certain day every month before your bills do. That way, it doesn't matter if you forgot, you're on a cruise with no internet, you're in a coma, your credit card's going to be paid off. Alrighty, Justin. Well, that is all the baby steps plus the little credit card bonus. What I do want to say is I know we were ragging on Dave Ramsey this entire time and the reason why I think we have so many issues with the baby steps and all of his different dogmas is because it's that. It is, you do this thing, there is no other alternative, this is the best path forward. And 
like I said earlier in the episode, Justin and I just like to take an honest look and you know, take a look at the math, take a look at the psychology. It doesn't always have to be a one size fits all answer. Like there's so many different ways to do it. There's so many ways to pay off debt. There's so many ways to hit financial independence. There's so many ways to just get creative with your finances. So I honestly think, I think Dave Ramsey does a lot more good than he does harm. There's a lot of people that he reaches that Justin and I would never have the chance to even talk to. There's a lot of, or anyone in the financial independence space for that matter. So if Dave Ramsey does get these people to start caring about money that would never, ever listen to a podcast like ours or consume financial content other than his, then that's awesome. But all I'm saying is that shouldn't take his word for law and that there are a lot of different ways, a lot of different nuances when it comes to finances. And hopefully this episode got you thinking and got you to explore some of those different avenues. If you enjoyed this episode, if you want to kind of a refresh on what all the baby steps are, a quick little summary, we have all that. If you want to share this maybe with someone who is a Dave Ramsey follower and you want to show them the light and show them that there are different paths than just the seven baby steps, you can do all of that and more at the five show.com slash Ramsey. That's the five show.com slash R-A-M-S-E-Y. Justin, any closing thoughts before we head out for today? Like you said, I think Dave has introduced personal finance to a lot of people who were never spoken to. You know, I think that that's done a great thing for the country as far as people who are taking their finances seriously. We just hope that you will see it as merely kind of like a gateway drug and that you'll graduate to the more pure things like me and Cody. <laughs> and as always, if you want to check out our Facebook group page, you can do so at thefyshow.com slash community. And we always appreciate those five-star reviews. They help us get great guests like we had today. And if you're interested in supporting The Fi Show, you can do so by checking out some of our partners over at the resources page, which can be found at thefyshow.com slash resources. And thanks for listening.